Welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. I'm Brian, and today I'm going to geek out. Consider yourself warned. This episode is going to dive into the weeds, tracing the lineage of English Bible translations. It's an interesting little walk through history. It should help to reassure you that what you read in your English translation has stood the test of time. First, we'll talk about some of the ancient manuscripts. So, around 40 biblical authors were inspired by God to pen the books of the Bible. Men who wrote the original texts and letters that make up our Bible were inspired by the Holy Spirit and given special revelation from God. Danny Aiken describes the Bible as a 100% divine work and 100% a work of man. John MacArthur says the Word of God was protected from human error in its original record by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The original texts were copied, and this led to the ancient manuscripts that are available to us today. Various groupings of these ancient manuscripts are used to create the translations we have right now. The Old Testament was mostly written in Hebrew, and while the vast majority of its 37 books were written in Hebrew, portions of Ezra and Daniel were written in Aramaic. I've gotten some questions about this, so I was going to expand on some of it. Aramaic became the unofficial language of business in the ancient times of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, up until the time when Alexander the Great introduced Greek as one of the universally spoken languages. In addition to Greek, Jesus and the apostles are thought to have spoken Aramaic too. A couple of the lines that they speak in the New Testament are actually Aramaic words. We also have Babylonian and Jewish Talmuds that are written in Aramaic from ancient times. The Babylonian Talmud in Aramaic is interesting and noteworthy because Babylon is the scene for the book of Daniel. Curiously, the book starts out in Hebrew, and then in chapter 2 switches to Aramaic. It switches right during the interpretation of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it continues through chapter 7, which is also a dream interpretation. Ezra has two sections in Aramaic. The first is chapter 4, verses 8 through 6, verses 18, and the second is chapter 7, verses 12 through 26. Just like Daniel, both of these sections involve foreign leaders and dignitaries. In Ezra's case, it's correspondence to and from the Persian royal leaders. The New Testament's 27 books were written almost entirely in Greek, except for a couple verses that are in Aramaic, like Matthew 27, verse 46, where he says, Eli Eli Lima Sabakathani? I may have butchered that. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus' words on the cross are actually in Aramaic, which is I didn't know it was interesting for me during my research. So, when you look at the Hebrew Bible and our Old Testament, the number of books is different. Why is that? So the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament canon of Jesus' time, includes the same books we have in our current Old Testament. The number of books look different because in the Hebrew Bible, some of the books we divide are lumped together. For instance, our English books of Ezra and Nehemiah appear to have been combined into one Hebrew book, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The same with the 12 minor prophets, which we have identified separately in our Bibles as 12 different books, but were originally just called the Book of the Twelve. Where we have 39 Old Testament books, Jesus would have had only 22 distinct books. The content of the books is the same, 
modern translations just break it down into a few more book names. Of note is that Jesus' Bible did not contain a group of books that we consider today to be the Apocrypha. These books are books that were written during the years after the last Old Testament book Malachi had been completed and a Hebrew canon was already closed. No place in the New Testament is the Apocrypha quoted, and Jesus himself never affirms any of these books as divine scripture. They were not added to certain translations until around 150 BC when a group of scholars in Egypt translated the Old Testament into Greek. This translation is called the Septuagint. At the end of this translation, the authors added a few additional books from Jewish literature. These books weren't intended to be canon and aren't found in any ancient canon list by scholars, such as Jewish historian Josephus' list of Hebrew canon. The Jewish philosopher Philo quoted from the Old Testament all the time, but never quoted from the Apocrypha. The Jewish scholars of Gemnia also never recognized the Apocrypha as canon. It is also widely regarded that both Jesus and the Apostles had access to the Septuagint, and again, they never call out these extra books. The early church leaders also never recognized these books as divine scripture. We even have proof of some strongly speaking out against them. So books like First and Second Maccabees may be good reading or provide historical context, but they are not scripture and aren't divinely inspired. That's why they aren't in most of our Bible translations. Later, when Jerome translated the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts into Latin, he also translated these books. But they were meant to be more for like extra credit, not as part of canon itself. He even called them good examples for life and instruction, but not doctrine. After his death, some version of these books were included into the manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. The Roman Catholic Church didn't even officially adopt them as part of Catholic, Catholic canon until the Council of Trent in the 1540s. They have never been part of Jewish, early Christian, or modern, modern Protestant canon. So if you hear people talk about the books of the Apocrypha, you're, they're mostly talking about a group of books that were written during the time after the Old Testament was closed, but before Jesus came around, that aren't considered part of canon by the early Christian church or by Protestants today, but that you might see in some Catholic Bibles. Another group of books that are confusing are called the Pseudopigrapha. These are books that were written after Jesus's life, whose origins cannot be verified and or whose doctrines are not sound. These books have never been considered scripture and are not recognized as divinely influenced. An example of one of these books would be the so-called Gospel of Thomas, which isn't really a gospel at all. Some of these books were also, the earliest manuscripts we have are from Italian literature, and they date to the Renaissance time frame. These books were not ancient books. When it comes to the books that we have in our Bible today, we can trust that the words we read in the Bible, the books that are canon, haven't changed over time because we have so many more manuscripts of the Bible than any other book from antiquity. For the New Testament, Josh McDowell gives an example of the number of ancient manuscript copies that really puts it into historical perspective. 
compare the number of manuscripts for Homer's Iliad, we have, which is 643 today, to the number of manuscripts for the New Testament, which is 24,970. Over 5,000 of those are actually in the original Greek as well. That's 38 times as many manuscript copies of the New Testament than the runner-up, the Iliad. If you think the Bible isn't reliable, then you, you would have to discount all ancient writings and ignore all history before the Renaissance. Ravi Zacharias says that there is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity as our Bible. When it comes to the ancient manuscripts we have used, for the Old Testament we have manuscripts like the Biblia Hebraica, we also have the Septuagint, which was in Greek, and was written about 200 years before Jesus. We also have the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts and others. The Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts are interesting, and I'll dive into them a little bit. So they were biblical and non-biblical scrolls found in caves between 1947 and 1956. The manuscripts that they found date to about 200 to 150 BC, so almost 200 years before Jesus. Included are at least partial scrolls for all but one Old Testament book. The book of Esther is the only one that wasn't a partial scroll on. There were a total of 223 confirmed Old Testament scroll fragments found in those caves. The caves themselves and their discoveries is a really interesting story. They exist because a Jewish Messianic sect, the Essenes, broke off from Jewish leadership in Jerusalem a few hundred years before Jesus. Tim Chester says they separated themselves from society into separate communities, including the community at Qumram, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They believed the nation of Israel was corrupt, particularly its rulers who colluded with the Gentiles who defiled the land, but the rest of the nation was also blind, they believed. The Essenes copied and preserved a huge amount of Jewish literature that was later lost. It was preserved amazingly in desert caves in the Qumran region. They were completely forgotten until one day in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy threw a stone into a cave and he heard a jar break. The rest is history as they make this huge discovery and they continue to uncover these caves and these jars and these amazing scrolls from history although some of the story reads like comedy like when a few of the scrolls discovered were being in the new york times classified section you can actually google dead sea scroll sales ad and see a picture of the ad reading biblical manuscripts dating to at least 200 bc are for sale this would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. When the volume of ancient manuscripts we have are compared with the Septuagint and then compared with the Dead Sea Scrolls found, we see incredible accuracy. There was almost no variation in the text, even though these Old Testament texts were manually copied for centuries. When it comes to the New Testament, we have some manuscripts that are very good and full, such as the Novum Testimonium Greeks, but we also have 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts or manuscript, manuscript scraps. They all date fairly close to the originals. John MacArthur notes that after analyzing all these texts, 
textual scholars have generally concluded that 99.9% of the original writings have been reclaimed, and of the remaining one hundredth of 1%, there are no variants substantially affecting any Christian doctrine. Until the 15th century, the list of people who had access to a Bible was very, very small. For starters, a lot of people weren't literate, which makes it hard to read. Second, the Bible wasn't written in languages that most people spoke or understood, almost strictly in the original languages or Latin. Thirdly, creating a new Bible was a long and tedious process. The printing press wasn't invented until around 1450, so everything had to be hand-copied until that point. One of my favorite nerdy things to share with people is the Great Isaiah Scroll online upload. If you can, Google the Great Isaiah Scroll and click on the Digital Dead Sea Scrolls link. It's a great example of what an ancient biblical scroll looked like. You can even see the different spots where the paper, quote-unquote, was stitched together. The scroll was discovered in 1947, but it's actually dated approximately 125 years before Jesus. No spell check or Microsoft document compare existed back then. It was an old-school manual QA process. Right around column 30 in that online upload, you can see a great example of an ancient scribe QA method, where a QA scribe would go back through and make sure nothing was omitted during the manual translation process. You can actually see the smaller print and the note in the margin where a missed line had been added. It ends up being really incredible when you think through the QA process. There was a study done between the Great Isaiah Scroll from around 125 BC and the Masoretic Text of Isaiah, which was from around 916 AD, and the accuracy was insane, a thousand-year difference. And in McDowell's book, he quotes a study done by Burroughs comparing Isaiah 53. Burroughs states, of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. None of these letters significantly change the meaning of the passage. Some are spelling and some are conjunction styles, things like that. Nothing major. It's just, it's amazing when you think about it. Alright, we've gotten this far and we haven't even talked through any of the first English translations that came out. So now I'm just going to kind of do a quick-fire rundown of some of the major events and Bible translations that came out in English up until today. So John Wycliffe published the first English translation of the whole Bible. It was in 1382. It was intended for the common man. It was not a translation from Hebrew or Greek, but a translation from the Latin Vulgate. It was condemned as heretical, and copies of the book were burned. The Protestant Reformation started in around 517, so about 150 years later. Men started to publicize that certain foundational doctrines taught by the Catholic Church were not in standing with Scripture itself, and weren't what the Christian Church had been founded on. They came up with the five solas, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. It was a new focus on reading scripture itself and trying to get the Bible into the hands of the quote-unquote lay people instead of just the religious elite. Combining the Reformation with the printing press saw the number of English-language Bibles grow and spread. In 1525, William Tyndale's New Testament came out. 
It was the first printed English translation, but it was not a full Bible. It contained the whole New Testament and some portions of the Old Testament. It was based on the Hebrew and Greek texts, not the Latin Vulgate like the Wycliffe Bible, which made it the first real English translation from the originals. It was printed by a man named Peter Quintel in Cologne in 1525. But when the printer's facility was raided by the police, Tyndale had to relocate. It wasn't until 1526 that that the translation made it to England. Tyndale was attempting to translate the entire Old Testament, but he was kidnapped, and at age 42, Tyndale was strangled and then burned at the stake. Danny Aiken says that it's estimated that 90% of the King James Bible of 1611 is actually Tyndale. In 1535, Miles Coverdale printed an English Bible. It used the Greek text for the New Testament, but Coverdale didn't know Hebrew, so he based the Old Testament on the existing Latin and German translations of the Old Testament. He was the first English translation to completely remove any of the apocryphal books that the Latin Vulgate had previously. In 1537, the Matthew Bible came out. It was written by a guy whose actual name was John Rogers, but who used the pen name Thomas Matthew. It was the first English Bible to be licensed. It turns out that he was right to want to hide his real name, because once the English Queen Bloody Mary redeclared Catholicism the official English church, he was burned at the stake. He was actually the first to be burned in 1555. In 1539, the Great Bible was published. It was called that because of its size. The Bible itself was huge. It wasn't really a translation. It was more a revision of the Matthew Bible. Interestingly enough, the common book of prayer that we still see in some pews today uses the Psalms from the Great Bible of 1539. In 1560, the Geneva Bible came out. It had Calvinistic notes in it, so it was basically like the original commentary Bible for Calvinists. It's also called Shakespeare's Bible. It was the Bible used by Shakespeare and also some of the famous Puritans of the time. According to Danny Aiken, only the Tyndale Bible had more influence on the authorized King James Version than the Geneva Bible. Then you get to 1611 and the authorized King James Version. It was a true translation of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. According to the KJV website, it took 54 scholars working for seven years to finish. Its initial reception wasn't actually that good for as popular as it became. It took a while for it to catch on, but it became hugely popular. It still is today. It has been updated a number of times since then, including a major language update in 1769. Most people don't realize that if they open up the KJV on their phone or internet app, they are actually reading the 1987 version. Then you get other versions, like in 1885 you get the English Revised Version. You get the American Standard Version in 1901. You get the Revised Standard Version in 1952 and 1971. You have the NASB, the New American Standard, which was first published in 1960, but since has been revised a number of times, including as recently as 2012. The ESV, which has 2001 and 2016 revisions. English Bible translations are constantly being reviewed and revised in light of greater language understanding, vocabulary changes, and approach philosophies. But these changes are minor, and would go unnoticed by the vast majority of readers. They do not change the theology of the Bible.
I'll put some of my sources up on the blog, but some of the major resources that I've used are The MacArthur's Dunny Bible by John MacArthur, Evidence for Christianity by Josh McDowell, Interpreting and Teaching the Bible, which is a free online course hosted by Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and taught by Danny Aiken, God's Word Alone, The Authority of Scripture, which is part of a five solas series and was written by Matthew Barrett, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the Great Isaiah Scroll. I would also recommend John Piper's book, A Peculiar Glory, which is also a good read on this subject. I know this was more a history lecture and geek out session, but hopefully it was interesting. The next series we're going to dive into is a chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Matthew. If you're not already, please follow along at From Hevel to Eternity on Facebook and YouTube to keep up with the latest releases. Until next time, I love y'all.